This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. I wanted to lay some groundwork, and so that's why we looked at what we did last week in 1 Corinthians 1, and again today, because this... Uh, these two passages in chapter one, one really set up what's going on when we get to the passages discussing spiritual gifts. Um, it's not just a generic spiritual gift primer or something like that that Paul is writing in 12 through 14. Rather, he is uh, responding to a real life situation among real people in a church. And uh, chapter one gives us that background. Last week, we looked at the fact uh, in verses one through nine that Paul writes the Corinthians and their church is an absolute mess, uh, arguably the most messed up, broadly messed up church in the whole New Testament. And uh, yet Paul looks at them through the eyes of grace, and his first words to these people are that he thanks God for them. And he thanks God for them because God has acted on them by his grace in the past. God is acting presently by his grace through spiritual gifts, which is one of their primary challenges and problems. But he's affirming this is God at work in you. They're misusing the gifts, but the gifts are from God, and they have all gifts is what he says. It's an amazing statement. And then he thanks God by his grace that God will hold them to the end. So we get an introduction to their spiritual gifts at the very beginning, uh, which they are misusing, but Paul thanks God because he looks at them in Christ. He looks at God's work in them and he looks at their future in God and he's able to speak very positively and encouragingly to those who struggle. In verse 10, we're going to read 10 to 17 today, he begins to address one of their primary foundational problems and that is division. So verse 10, chapter 1 of Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for the truths and the implicit warnings that are in this passage. And we want to respond today by asking that you would open our eyes as we sang, when you move, we pray that you would move by your spirit in this place this morning and in our lives, and that you would open our eyes to Jesus Christ in a fresh way, that we might be unified today around Christ, that we might be unified today around the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, that we might be unified around you. 
Lord, we cannot do that. Only you can. So teach us and act in us and through us to bring this about for your glory today. Lord, fill me with your spirit that I could proclaim your word in truth and in power for your glory. I ask these things. Give us all ears to hear. Amen. Um, This is a passage about quarreling in the church. It's a passage about division in the church. Um, I have... Since first grade, I remember distinctly becoming a part, my family becoming a a part of a church plant when I was in first grade, meeting in an elementary school. And uh, since first grade until today, I've been a member of six churches. And all of those have been in different cities except one, so I haven't moved uh, around. Typically, if I find a place uh, in a city, I stick with it. So that's my story. Uh, I've been in six churches, and uh, here's been my experience. Two of those churches have had just hardcore solid church splits. The kind of church splits, that's a third of my churches, uh, church experiences I've been a part of. Uh, the kind of church splits that you could drive down the road and you could see another building of people that are gathering who used to be all together. In one of the cases, the, the church that split off, I stayed, I was in the, in the staying, not the going in both of these, but in the, in the, in the one, one of the churches, the new church emerged literally just across from where we were, and we shared the same parking lot. So on Sunday mornings, you parked with people, and you didn't know which church are you going to. And, and that's not a church split. I mean, that's an, that's an episode of the Twilight Zone is what that is. And so that's two of them. One of the churches I was a part of uh, didn't formally split but was thrust into absolute upheaval. The church was divided. The church was filled with rancor and slander and gossip and hurt and self-righteousness because the senior pastor of that church was revealed to be living uh, in sexual immorality. And uh, he stepped down and the place went absolutely nuts with offense and hurt and disillusionment and all kinds of stuff. So that's These aren't years, but numbers. That's three of the six churches I've been a part of. One church I was only in a year. And uh, so I guess I wasn't around long enough for something bad to happen. And then uh, that's that's a joke. I wasn't leading all these churches, any of these churches, actually, just so you know. I haven't led any of the churches I've just described to you. The fifth church was the first church I ever led, which was in, uh, which I was in prior to coming here. And, uh, that church didn't have a, a division, uh, while I was there. And I'm here. And this church hasn't had a big division while, neither one of them had a division while I've been here. And, uh, so those are my six church experiences. And when I talk to people, I don't think my experience is atypical. If you've never experienced division in a church, then your experience is not common. And church divisions and church quarrels and church separations, they are not tied to a particular denomination. They are not tied to a particular doctrine. They are not tied to a particular polity. They are not tied to a particular style of ministry. They are not tied to a particular geographic location or culture. They're tied to humanity. And so when we read what's going on in Corinthians, many of us in the room have experienced things like what Paul is talking about. And the passage we just read is so very relevant for every one of us. Not because we're currently having any divisions that I'm aware of. If if we are, please tell me at the end of the service. Um, But 
we're not experiencing this, so I'm not saying we should read it in that way that it's relevant because this is us right today, but I am saying this, we should read it as relevant potentially for every one of us. See, here's the thing. We shouldn't read Scripture, and when we're reading of problems in the Bible, distance ourselves from them. Identify ourselves with God and not with sinful people. That's not how you read the Bible. We should read the Bible trying to learn and have God apply truth to us because we're made of the same stuff as the people in the New Testament and the Old Testament and all the people. There's not a character in the Bible that we're not made of the same stuff as. And the reality is when we read to the Corinthians, it is a very short step for me or for you or for anyone, a very short step of pride, arrogance, selfishness, envy, jealousy, self-righteousness. It's a very small step in any of those that can lead me to be offended or to offend someone else. And then to gather a party around such offense and then to divide. I can do that. It's very easy. You can do that. It's very easy. So we want to read a passage of this aware that we're made of the same stuff as the people in the Bible, and we need a Savior just like the people in the Bible, and we need Jesus to forgive our sins and to mature us, and just like he said to the Corinthians, to guide us till the very end. We need Jesus just as much as they do. And if we don't think so, then we have missed the whole point of the passage. It's about needing Christ. We aren't to expect division like it's inevitable. I'm not saying that, but we should learn and apply and ask God to help us that we might live a life that fosters relational unity in our families, uh, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our small groups, in our churches. And that's what this passage is about. Paul begins here by making an appeal. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. I'm going to talk about his appeal because his appeal goes on. He makes appeals for about four chapters. But this first appeal is, first of all, a gracious appeal to family. So I'm going to talk about the nature of this appeal. It's a gracious appeal to family. Now, again, they're having problems, but look how he addresses them. I appeal to you, brothers, brothers. He introduces his concern for them in a familial way. When he says brothers, it's an inclusive term that means brothers and sisters. So he's not just talking to the guys in the church. It's inclusive. If you have an ESV, it'll, it'll note that, as a matter of fact, in the bottom of your, uh, in your margin. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Do you know that the most common designation of a Christian in the New Testament is not Christian, it's not believer, it's not born again, It's not follower of Christ or something like that. The most common designation in the epistles of a Christian is brothers and sisters. That's the most regular way of referring to a fellow believer. And Paul, this Corinthian church has so many problems. They have problems with him. He's having to bring a lot of adjustment to him. They are having problems with him personally. And he uses the reference to family, this reference, brothers and sisters, 39 times in this letter. That's twice more than any of his other letters. The second most is Romans and First Thessalonians. But it's half as many as this. So when Paul is dealing with people who are not only divided among themselves but offended with him, here's his approach. We're brothers. We're sister. You're my sister. This is his starting place. We're family. We have the same father. 
he goes to adoption. When you see brother and sister, that's adoption language because it recognizes that God has adopted us. He is our father. So it's a common relationship with the same father that brings us into relationship together. The unity that we are to enjoy, that the Corinthians are to enjoy, this unity is based on the fact that we have the same father that we have had our sins forgiven, that we are loved and welcomed, that we've been incorporated into the same family. It's such a more endearing, warm term than Christian or fellow believer. I love the term Christian and fellow believer. But brother and sister means we're in this thing forever. This isn't an optional, temporary sort of a deal. We are joined to the people of God for eternity. Now, not the people in this room. I don't mean that, that you're joined to one church for eternity. I'm not saying that. But you're joined to the universal church, and you should be joined, I should be joined to some local church until we die, and we're joined to the universal church for all eternity. So in a church that has a lot of problems, he doesn't address them as father. He doesn't start off as saying, I'm a father to you in the right sense of the word. He was. He planted the church. He led them to Christ. But he doesn't come in and say, I fathered you in the faith. He comes along and says, my brothers and my sisters, I'm appealing and I'm making a familial appeal. I mean, right off the bat, here's what I would say. Whenever we are in conflict with your spouse, your children, your friends, wherever we're in conflict with other Christians, your small group, somebody in this room, uh, your relative who's a Christian, uh, your coworker who's a Christian, whenever we're in conflict with a believer, this should be our vantage point. We're brothers and sisters. That's where we're starting. Just like cutting you off, that's not an option. Just like being done with you, not an option. We're family. We're family. And that's how he addresses them in conflict. It's a, an appeal, a gracious appeal to family. Secondly, it's a sober appeal for unity. Number two, a sober appeal for unity. The place that he puts this is significant, I think. I mean, this is where he starts. So Paul's going to talk about a lot of things, serious things, like people not believing in the resurrection, serious. People standing up and speaking in tongues without interpretation so that no one understands and it appears crazy, serious. People getting drunk at communion, serious. People welcoming somebody that's sleeping with his father's wife, serious. There is people going and having lawsuits against one another in the church, serious. There's all kinds of serious stuff, but here's where Paul starts, unity. Unity. That's the first place he starts. And I think that communicates something of the priority of it. He does the exact same thing in Ephesians. I don't want to develop that all out, but here's just the big idea. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about what God has done. I think there's only like one command, maybe, maybe two, in that whole three chapters. It's all about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Chapter four, he starts giving commands and how we're to behave in response to all Christ has done. Here's the, here's the first thing he says. Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about speech. He's going to talk about morality. He's going to talk about children uh, children and the relationship to their parents. He's going to talk about all kinds of important stuff. Here's the first thing he says to the Ephesians after he describes all that Jesus has done for them. Maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is where he starts. And here's my hunch, is that unity is a much bigger deal to God than it is to me and than it likely is to you. 
so big a deal that Jesus shed his blood, his body is broken, he endures the wrath of the Father to make us one. And so Paul starts this whole letter. I mean, this is sober, just the placement of it. I appeal to you, brothers, that's familial, that's warm, by the name, full title, Lord Jesus Christ. This is a serious appeal. I'm appealing to you, family, by the name of our Savior, that all of you Corinthians agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. What's his appeal? What does he say? That all of you agree. This word agree is interesting. It literally means to say the same thing. I appeal to you that you all say the same thing. I appeal to you that you, it could be translated this way as well, that you speak with one voice. Wow, is Paul saying that you agree, you say the same thing? Is he calling them all to be clones exactly alike? Is he squelching everybody's personality? Does he want robots, cookie-cutter Christians? Not at all. When we get to chapter 12, we're going to see that Paul is all about diversity. That's what he says. You guys act like there's one gift. There's a diversity of gifts Paul is all into diversity, and a diverse, particularly a diversity of gifts in the church, not all the same. But what he's saying is, you all should be saying the same thing. You should all should be about the same thing. You all should be about Christ and His work in the gospel. And you may say that saying that you may say that thing in differing ways, but you're agreeing on the same thing. It's kind of like this: if uh, if you're singing a song and you have four people singing, and they're all singing the melody, which is the, means they're singing the same thing, the way the song goes. I don't know how you define melody. The way the song goes, I guess. Uh, they're all singing the way it's supposed to go, and uh, their voices are all the same. They're singing in unison. They're looking at the same sheet of music on the music stand. They're singing in unison the same thing. That's not what he says. Everybody sing the exact same notes. He's saying, say the same thing, but there's going to be harmony. So the four of you are going to each sing a different part, and it's going to be beautiful as you bring your voice, as you bring differing notes that blend together, as you bring your unique high or low or whatever you you sing, alto, soprano, baritone, whatever you sing, you sing your part in your way, the way God made you to be, but let's say the same thing. Let's sing the same words, words off the same sheet of music. That's an analogy of what he's talking about because he said, let's say the same thing, but when we get to 12, we're going to see there's differing parts to the body. So it's a diversity in the church that speaks the same message and lives the same message of the gospel. Not dull cookie cutter clones, harmonious unity around the gospel. That's the picture. So I appeal to you that you all agree that you say the same thing, that you speak with one voice, that there be no divisions, that's the negative, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, there's someone doing more kind of word study than I normally do going through here because I think some of these words happen to be rich and meaningful. This word united has a, has a meaning of being together. It literally means like being knit together. In Mark 1, this word is used to describe James and John mending their nets. And uh, so they are mending, they are sewing, they are uniting their nets. They're, they fished for a living, their nets tear after a big catch, and so they are knitting, sewing, mending, uniting the nets into one net. And that's what he's saying. You be united like a net. 
Don't be torn, but the same word could be used of sewing together. You're sewn together. You're knit together by God. And if I wanted to go way out and expand that metaphor farther than it should be expanded, which is a preacher way of doing things, I might say that a net without any holes catches more fish. But I'm not going to do that because that's not the point of this, and that's just a little creative bonus point. But the reality is that our being united together is a witness to the world. The world is reached as the people of God. They'll know, John 13, they'll know your disciples, my disciples, by your love for one another. John 17, but they'll know that the, Jesus says, they'll know the Father sent me if you're one. When the net is tied, united together, it's a glorious thing before God. So be united, be knit together, be sewn together of the same mind and of the same judgment. A uniting in mind, a united in judgment around the gospel. That's where, that's where we're headed here. <clears throat> that's where the passage heads. That you're to be in the same mind about the gospel. You say the same thing about Christ and the gospel. To be, have the same judgment about the gospel. Not just the facts of the gospel, but the priority of the gospel. Because that's their problem. They believe the facts of the gospel likely, except the folks questioning the resurrection. But they, they believe the, they believe the facts of the gospel. They just don't have the gospel as central in their lives. Okay, so a sober appeal for unity. Agree. Be sewn together, united together in what you think, what you say, what you believe. What's their problem? Well, look at verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There's quarreling. We don't know who Chloe is, and we don't know the exact nature of what all the quarreling is, but Chloe's people... Um, she's, she must be known. She's got peeps that she can refer to. She's known by them. Everybody in the church knows this name. Um, but we don't know her. We don't really know anything about her, but her people come to Paul and they say, Paul, uh, here's the report on Corinth. They're fighting. They're quarreling is what she tells them. And so Paul recognizes this, that they are a divided church. Now, we don't know exactly how they're divided. There's a lot of speculation. And actually, there's so much in the book of Corinthians, but it's this point that probably has the most scholarly uh, variety of opinions and arguments, and I'm not even going to dip down into it, uh, but different ideas about who these different groups of people are and what they believe. There's a ton of speculation. Here's what we know about the different groups. There's a division. They're divided. Verse 12 says, this is what we know. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So here's what's happening. There's division in the church, there's groups of people, and they're rallying around a teacher. They're rallying around a leader as the person that they follow. Now, the leaders are not mad at each other. Paul, in chapter 3, is going to uh, really affirm in no uncertain terms Apollos very powerfully. So Paul's not opposed to Apollos. Cephas is a name for Peter. So Paul and Apollos are not mad at Peter. Uh, nobody's mad at Christ. They're all seeking to follow him. So some people are saying, I follow Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas. It could be this is the person that uh, uh, Peter may have visited the church. We don't know. Apollos did visit the church. Paul planted the church. So it could be the person that led them to the gospel. It it could be the person, something about their gifts that they were drawn to. What is the I follow Christ group? Well, in almost any conflict and in any church, 
and in it, or not often in a church, but in the world, there's hyper spiritual people that don't need a leader. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not a part of a church. I don't have leaders in my life. I don't need a pastor. I follow Jesus. Okay. Well, um, so that in the New Testament, people are not following humans, but they are associated with churches. So it could be folks who are just saying, I don't even want a part of it. I'm just sort of very spiritual, and I get all my instruction directly from Jesus. Um, but we don't know. They're just divided people, and they are separated from each other. What is key here is that whether they're formal groups or informal, we don't know if they had their own meetings in different homes, the Paul group, the the, uh, Apollos group, we don't know that. But here's what's clear. Look at the repetition. The word I is what is communicated here for emphasis. Paul could have just said, you know, what I mean is that there's different groups of people that are following Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. He could have written the sentence that way. That's not how he wrote it. How did he write the sentence? What I mean is that each of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. Each of you are asserting I. The community is not in view. What's in view is me, who I'm with, what I think, what team I am on, what leader I identify with, what leader best represents my case, what leader best represents my doctrine, my philosophy, my emphasis, my gifts. We know from the scripture that Apollos, for instance, was very articulate, and Paul says that he's not as a speaker. So it could have been, I, like Apollos, is speaking, but it's it's I, there's the I there. I am attaching myself to someone, and by attaching myself to someone, I feel better, I look better, it gives credibility to my position, I'm staking my claim over here. I. It's not the people of God. It's not brothers and sisters. It's not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's I. That's the emphasis. One commentator said it this way. Their view of Christian leaders as teachers of wisdom really ministers to their own exaltation. It is true that they boast about these great names, but only to boast about themselves. We know what that is, identifying ourselves with a leader, a church, a denomination, a book, a conference, a philosophy. Just can assert that. Well, and I could toss out names, but I'm not going to. Uh, Well, so-and-so says, and I'm right because I believe this, and somebody really famous as a preacher or author or leader believes this, and I'm identifying with him. But I'm putting me first in that argument. I'm advancing me. I don't really care about so-and-so. I may have never even met so-and-so. But I'm going to use their name, and I'm going to identify with them to make my point. In 1990, Michael Jordan uh, had a game against Cleveland, I think, in which he scored the most points he ever scored in a game. He scored 69 points in a single game that clinched a playoff game for them. And it was the most he had ever scored in a game, 69 points. So that was pretty amazing. There was a rookie on the team that year named Stacy King. Stacy King uh, made one free throw and scored one point in that game. 
And so at the end of the game, obviously everybody is centered around Jordan. What 69 points? It's the most ever scored. Wanting to talk to him about the evening, but some reporter caught Stacy King, the rookie who made one free throw and scored one point that night, and asked him what he thought about the event of the great Michael Jordan scoring 69 points. And this was rookie Stacy King's comment: "I will always, always remember tonight as the night." Michael and I combined for 70 points. (laughs) An insignificant rookie who attached himself to pure greatness in, in a joking manner, identifying, look what we did. That's kind of, without the humor, what's going on here. I am with Paul. He founded the church. I am with Peter, who's reaching the Jews I am with Apollos. Do you hear his speaking? I don't need any leaders. Don't believe in any leaders. I'm just me and Jesus. You could see how it works for people to promote themselves. We can do this so easily. Well, at my church, the way we do it, my pastor says, Sovereign Grace says, Well, the Reformed viewpoint on that is, I could list a ton of leaders, which I'm not going to. Here's what makes it so interesting in our age. Probably these people knew these folks. They had visited the church or something like that. Nowadays, you can have a guru, because of the Internet, you can have a guru that you attach yourself to. It has bold new possibilities. You can download today, tomorrow, you can download many sermons that were preached today, many sermons better than this one, and you can find all kinds of pastors, teachers, Christian celebrities that you can, they wouldn't posit themselves as Christian celebrities, we just treat them that way, but you can download their podcast and hear their message and by Tuesday be identifying yourself with what so-and-so said in the debate. So our guru possibilities practically are way greater than the Corinthians. And I can be right and smarter than you and more godly than you and more informed than you and better than you and able to correct you because I can address what so-and-so said who I think very highly of, who's way more knowledgeable and godly than you'll ever dream of being, and he said this. Those people over there are so because we are, I'm associated with, oh, is that what happened? Well, here's the way we do it in our church. This is the way. I used to think that, but now, see, we can all do this. Now, it is appropriate to be grateful for a teacher, even someone or an author you've never met. I can list a lot of people that have influenced me at a distance that I'm very grateful for. I can identify teachers in this room and in our network of churches that I know and have heard that I'm deeply grateful for. But there is a difference between being grateful to God for someone and to assert that we are right because we identify with someone. Those are two very different things. So I'm not saying never express any gratitude Never appreciate God's using a friend or a leader or a teacher or a church or a group of churches or a denomination or a conference or whatever. I'm not saying don't be grateful. I'm just saying there's a big difference because when I'm attaching myself with a viewpoint to divide myself from you, I'm identifying with a leader and not Christ. Division is coming soon. So 
he is making a sober appeal to unity. Think the same way in terms of the gospel. Have the same mind. Have your lives joined together. And then here's the third and final thing he does is he makes a focused appeal to the gospel. Here is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not primarily the divisions. That's not the big problem. It's the cause of the divisions that's the big problem. And what is the cause of the divisions? Well, he addresses this in the very next verses. Verse uh, 13. So he, he remember, I follow Paulo, Cephas, Christ, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Oh boy, this is penetrating. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on to explain how he didn't baptize folks. Boy, in a, in a passage that I find very, incomfort, uh, very encouraging, he can't even remember. I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Oh, that gives me so much freedom because I say that all the time. I don't remember who did that. I don't know if I, I don't know. It's, that's great. It's in the Bible. I don't remember is in the Bible. <laughs> really, the older I get, the more, va- that's my, that's like my life verse. I don't remember. Did I do that? I don't, I don't, I don't even know. It's like three years later, and Paul can't remember who he baptized. That's very, so if I forget your name in the lobby, I got a verse, okay? Don't, th- I'm not a bad friend or a, a careless pastor. I got a, I'm like Paul. That's all. I just don't remember. Oh, okay. Is Christ divided? That's what he asked. Is Christ divided? Well, that is their, they're acting like he is. We've got the person of Christ, and like we've got him over here, and we've got him over here, and they're acting like Christ could be divided up, as if we're all not one, as if this isn't one family, as if we're not brothers and sisters. He's saying it's a rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Of course not. We're to be united. We're to be united. That's the word he used. We're to be knit together in him, around him. We can't divide Christ up. How can we be in different parties? How can we be divided in the fellowship? How is that even function? How is that possible for Christ as one? So we're joined together and yet we're acting separate. This is, he's just showing them this is wrong. They should be united in Christ. This is starting to give us a key to what the problem is. The problem isn't, I love Paul. The problem isn't, whoa, Apollos can speak. That dude can preach. I am all about him. That is not the problem. The problem is the centrality of Christ is being missed. And so he's saying, aren't we united in Christ? Look what he says next. The second question, was Paul crucified for you? Now that is rhetoric that stings because the answer is, of course not. Jesus died for us. Then why are you saying I follow Paul? Why are you rallying around Paul? If Jesus, so they have, they have lost the centrality of what is that? The crucifixion. They've lost the centrality of the person of Christ. How can he be divided? They lost the centrality of the gospel, meaning the death, resurrection, ascension, and seating in the throne of Christ. They've lost the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel. Was Christ crucified for you? That's the heart of the matter. That Jesus died and has risen, that's the heart of the matter. Why focus on personalities? Jesus is the Savior. Literally, he saved you. Why have this allegiance to leaders that divide you from other Christians? Christ is the one. We're committed to him. Was Paul crucified to you? What he's saying when he says, was Paul crucified for you? Is he saying, the crucifixion should be your rallying point. Was Christ divided? No. Let's get around Jesus. 
Was Paul crucified for you? No, Jesus was. Then let's get around the crucifixion, the cross, the resurrection, the gospel. Let's focus on that. Let's make that our rallying point. They have taken their eyes off Jesus and placed them somewhere else. Now they got divisions. They have taken their eyes off the cross and they're looking somewhere else. Now they've got divisions. And if this isn't clear enough right here, when he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? If it isn't clear enough that the central issue is that they have displaced Jesus and him crucified... From the center, if it's not clear enough there, look at how he says it explicitly in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, when I was with you, here's my whole ministry. Here's the whole thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't know anything else. Well, now, literally, Paul, you're talking about tongues. You're talking about gifts. You're talking about idols. You're talking about uh, the resurrection. You're talking about unity. You're talking about marriage and single life. What do you mean you didn't know anything else? Here's what Paul means. Is that for me, everything ties to Jesus Christ. Everything ties to the gospel. He is at the center, and he is the hub, and everything else spokes go out to other things. But it is Jesus and him crucified that I live for, that I dream about, that motivates me, that I'm passionate about. It's not this teacher, that teacher, what this guy says, what that guy says, this preference, this secondary issue. It's not that stuff. Those, those things have moved to the top to you. And that's why you can't get along. But if everybody gets Jesus at the top and the cross at the top, then we don't have all these fights. And that's what Paul's message to them is in this. See, the real problem with the Corinthians is not, it's not just that somebody stood up and spoke in tongues Adding, you know, just on and on without interruption. That's just a symptom. The problem is that somebody says, I, and can stand up, I, my gift, my spiritual experience, and subject everyone else to my. That's the problem. Because when everybody shows up and says, him, not me, Christ crucified, not my gift, then we don't have problems with tongues and every other gift in the church being abused. Why? Because Jesus is at the center and the gifts are to glorify him. It's not a spiritual gifts problem. It's a lack of gospel centrality problem that, that causes the, the divisions that lead to the problems that we're going to look at in 12 through 14. You can't just look at chapter 12 and say, oh, wow, well, they just didn't understand. They, they just needed some instruction on how there's a multiple gifts. They knew there was multiple gifts. They needed instruction on that Christ is the center and him crucified is our passion and our glory. When Paul says, I didn't know anything but Christ and him crucified, the crucifixion there is is likely being used as shorthand. He he means there, he obviously knew about the perfect life of Christ. He obviously knew about the burial, the resurrection. He knew about the ascension. He knew about the seating of Christ at the right hand of the Father and the ongoing rule and intercession of Christ for his people. He knows about all that gospel stuff. But kind of a shorthand is to say the cross. Let's center around the cross, which includes all the other stuff that I just meant. So look. Corinthians, he's saying, is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, was someone dunked under the water in the name of Paul? What? Oh, of course not. We were identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We were submitted to the lordship of Christ. 
Christ owns us. That's what baptism symbolizes. He owns my life. He saved me. I'm united. I'm in union with Christ. I'm not in union with Paul, except as a brother. In union with Christ in a saving way. So what's the solution to their disunity? Get in a big circle, everybody light a candle, sing a meaningful song. <laughs> we are the church, we are the world, or what, I don't know. We are the people, you know, is it, let's just get it, have an emotional moment. Could we get a piano player up here? We're just going to cha- get some mood music going so everybody can feel good about everybody else. Is that the goal? Is the goal a conference on unity? Is the goal a whole series of sermons on unity? It's not. It's not. The the solution to disunity is not preaching a lot of sermons about unity. I think it's preaching about Christ and him crucified and making the connection that we are one in him united in brothers and sisters and making the connection that his death, burial, and resurrection is central to everything else and prioritizing that and moving down the list all secondary and tertiary matters uh, and certainly things that are matters of preference. That's the key to unity. And so the solution is focused on Christ and him crucified. And Paul has to make this bold statement. I knew nothing. This strong statement. When I was with you, Christ and him crucified, that's everything. That's my whole ministry in a sentence. He has to say it that clearly to them so that they will get this is the problem. Division results when we take our eyes off Christ, when we stop looking at Jesus and we start looking at our favorite leader, our favorite teacher, our favorite pastor, our favorite small group leader, our favorite worship leader, our favorite Christian music artist, our favorite conference speaker, our favorite author, our favorite dead theologian that we bring up five times at every community group meeting. I don't know if anybody's doing that, so I wasn't calling you out publicly or something like that. But, you know, not like I am of this guy. That's not it. That, that's, that, whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on that, put it on an issue, a biblical issue. Put it on a value. Put it on a certain ministry. Put it on a certain mission. If we get our eyes and say, you know, the reality is in my heart, yeah, verbally I say I'm a gospel-centered church. Who in Corinthians, who in Corinth wouldn't say we're about Jesus? Who in Corinth wouldn't say for Jesus, for the gospel as their state, as their motto on the, on the website in Corinth? Who wouldn't say that? They all do. But the reality is that something else has moved up. So we're not really a Jesus and him crucified centered church. We've got, we're leader centered. We're issue centered. Good issues, maybe. We're prayer centered. We're a prayer church. We're the prayer church. We're the Bible study church. We're the everybody agrees on the same philosophy of education church. We're the evangelism church. We're the missional church. We're the everybody is between 24 and 26 church. We're the everybody's over 75 church. We're the, we're the youth ministry church. Next generation, baby. We're the youth ministry church. We're the marriage church. We're really about marriage and family. We're the family church. 80% of our people are single. We're reaching singles for Jesus, church. We're the Reformed church. We're the Calvinists. We're the Charismatics. We're the perfectly balanced of the two, church. That hits home. (laughs) We're the doctrine and experience, church. Both together. And some of you just doctrine people, we're better. And some of you just experience people, we're better. Because we've got them both like Paul who writes about election and says, I spoke in tongues more than the Corinthians. So he's the perfect balance, and we're like Paul. That's what's being said here. We're like Paul. 
So anytime our issue moves to the center, there's going to be division because I want to be the prayer church and you want to be my kids' education church. And over there, they want to be the political church and let's get the right guy in the White House church. And over here, they want to be the evangelism church and they want to be the Bible study church and they want to be the community small group church. And so when we're not those things, we're fighting. In varying ways, those numbers of the things I mentioned... I don't remember everything, so I'm not going to say everything. But a lot of the stuff I mentioned has a place of emphasis in a church, just not a place of centrality. See, the gospel exalts Jesus and not man. Corinthians are exalting man. When you're a Christ-centered church, when we're a Christ-centered church, everybody is enamored by Jesus and not leaders. Everybody's enamored by Jesus and not a certain doctrine. Everybody's enamored by Jesus and not the latest conference or the latest book. Everybody's enamored by Jesus. And everything else just sort of pales and shrinks in comparison. The gospel exalts the work of Jesus and not man. So we're not impressed by this work and that work and this man and that woman and this gift and that prayer and that evangelist and that teacher that theologian, that, you know what? We're really just going to be impressed by Jesus, ultimately, and his death and resurrection. We are grateful for that person in that book, in that conference, in that church, in that doctrine. We are grateful because we're encountering God through those means, but we're not idolizing or pedestalizing those individuals or those ideas or philosophies. Matter of fact, Paul's going to say, I'm not even a great preacher. So you can't say, I love Paul the preacher. I mean, verse 17, I didn't come with words of eloquent, well eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Paul actually says, if you're so enamored by the teaching, you miss Jesus. If you're so, Paul can preach. You demand, Paul. You know, uh, the, the cross just lost its, its power. Did you walk out thinking about Paul? Did you walk out thinking about Apollos? Did you walk out thinking about Uh, Peter, did you walk out thinking about, oh, Lord, you are glorious. You're at the center. That's what Paul wants. Paul's impressed with Jesus. Paul's impressed with the gospel. He's not impressed. He's in awe. He's overwhelmed. He's animated. He's motivated. He's filled with the presence of God. It just oozes out of him, his Christ and him crucified, so much that he says, that's what I'm about. A lot of other things matter, but nothing matters like that. And if any church has any hope at experiencing unity, it will require the grace of God exalting Jesus and the gospel, which results in the humbling of men and women. Because he's everything and I'm not. When you have highlighted Jesus in the gospel and you have humble men and women, then you have hope for unity among the people of God who treat each other as brothers and sisters, respectfully loving, serving, but worshiping Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. And every one of us in this room, starting with me, can lose that focus and end up somewhere else. Corinthians did it. I'm not better than the Corinthians. You're not better than Corinthians. It's easy to get very excited about a good thing and let a good and godly thing move out of the center, the only glorious Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. 
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 